0: Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and welcome to our Take Control of Your Health podcast, in which we bring you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. This next interview is part of my Best Of series, which features some of the most popular interviews with leading health experts. So thank you for listening. Now, let's get started with this week's program to help you and your family take control of your health. Wouldn't it be nice to have a conversation with one of the smartest doctors in the country? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And we're going to have an opportunity to do that today. No, not me. We're talking about Dr. Stephen Gundry, who wrote the book, The Plant Paradox, which tells the pretty much the the mysterious story of lectins, and we previously interviewed about that, so definitely we'll have a link to that interview, but we're gonna continue the conversation and a lot of other exciting areas that you wanna listen to. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Gundry.
1: Oh, thanks for having me back, really appreciate it.
0: So uh, you're, uh, it's been a few months since we last interviewed you and your book continues to be a success. It does not follow the typical pattern that we see for most health books including mine, which came up and was really high, just like yours, but then it fell down. And now yours is still in the top 100 books sold on Amazon, which means you've really struck a chord. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that and also on the critics, the fervent critics that you have that you've generated as a result of publishing this book.
1: Yeah, well, again, thanks for having me back. Um, We we certainly got a, a nice bump from our first interview from you. And... Know, thank you and your followers for kind of embracing this concept um, you, you know it's it's pretty interesting uh, the ride we've had uh, we spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and actually just fell off last week so uh, it's it's definitely uh, hit a chord with people and it's it's really wonderful to read all the five star reviews and read out people have tried it and uh, definitely had some amazing uh, successes so thanks everyone who's bought the book and if you, if you haven't bought the book give it a try um, yeah the uh, certainly when when the book began to get traction uh, this clearly started to bother a lot of people uh, and the, the people who really came out vehemently some of some of it actually really surprised me and I, I I won't mention names, and these people know who they are, and you can find them on the internet. But as a general category, a lot of them fall into the uh, low-fat vegan community, and the uh, grains and beans are the cornerstone of a healthy diet, and you know how dare you question what everybody knows that grains and beans are the cornerstone of a, of a healthy diet. And, you know, uh, I'm not against these things. In fact, I've got a bean recipe in my book. All I'm saying is that we have to be very cognizant of the lectin content in grains and beans. Um, and that we, there are ways to destroy lectins by pressure cooking beans, and it's perfectly makes them perfectly safe if you want to eat beans. Uh, and there are certain things that you can't pressure cook. Uh, gluten is not degradable by pressure cooking, unfortunately. But most other lectins are degradable. So, uh, you know, I'd love to talk a little bit deeper about some of the objections and arguments against the sure. book
0: and maybe give well, us a chance to and if, if I can um, give you my, give the, the, my response to those objections, uh, right. I, am, I am only, at least my perspective, would be that these, these individuals who are objecting don't really know you or your, your medical practice. And why what, what I wanted to have you back, and I definitely want to touch on this in our interview, is the scope of your practice. I mean, it's really extraordinary. You, 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 know, you just do this incredible, massive laboratory. You're essentially doing research in the clinic. I mean, yep. thousands and thousands of dollars worth of tests. So you, scale, you test all these obscure components, so you are not just guessing. You tell them to stop this food and come in, and you me- you're measuring all these biochemical pathways, and you know precisely, scientifically, from the research what the response is. So maybe you can integrate that that into your uh, response.
1: Yeah, that, 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 that's exactly right. When you know when I. Uh, resigned my uh, position as professor and chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda um, 17 years ago now. Uh, When I set up my practice to do this, I, you know, didn't know anything to do but research. So uh, I asked, I decided to make, you know, my practice a research project. And that everyone who came in to play with me, I asked them to you know, let me have uh, a few tubes of blood. We're actually up to, I think, 13 tubes of blood now <laughs> every, <laughs> every, every three months. And let me send it off to labs that, you know, I, I think are doing cutting edge work. And one of my critics say, I charge, you know, thousands of dollars to patients to do this. I don't, uh, I base it on insurance or Medicare, they're, they're covered laboratories. And I do an insurance-based practice. I do a Medicaid practice. So, so much for the critics. Uh, I'm not here bilking people of their hard-earned money. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with them. And so I asked them to give me their blood and then let's, you know, let's make some manipulations. Let's make some manipulations in their diet. Let's make some manipulations in their supplements. And this is from a guy who used to think supplements made expensive urine. And one of the things I did early on, which uh, I wanted to keep myself and, again, my making money out of the equation, so I would tell people to go buy you know, supplements at Costco or Trader Joe's or Vitacost or Mercola um, and let's see what they did. And actually, fairly early on, I could tell a good supplement from a bad supplement based on what people were doing. And it was very clear early on that supplements had a major effect, and I wrote a number of papers about that effect, many of which surprised me, Um, but now it doesn't surprise me at all. And I could tell when even people were changing brands of supplements based on their blood work. And so I've been doing this for 15, 17 years now, and amassed a rather impressive file of thousands of patients. And as time went on, I had better and better tests to look at uh, the inflammatory response of the immune system and uh, wrote about that in response to uh, removing or introducing some major dietary lectins. And, you know, I didn't do this with, a, with a, an agenda. Uh, I didn't have a grudge on my shoulder against lectins. Um, if I, if I suppose if I could eat mashed potatoes and french fries and phenomenal french bread every day, I'd probably be a happy guy. I'd probably be a lot sicker uh, <laughs> like, like I used to be.
0: <laughs>
1: but So I have nothing against these things. It's just that as the data came forward from thousands of people, uh, very distinct patterns emerged. And reproducible patterns. And I could reintroduce these things, and literally watch the immune system get uh, turned on again. And then I could remove some of these factors and watch the immune system calm down. So there was clearly a cause and effect.
0: Excellent. So one of the other comments that your critics mentioned, and and perhaps you can clarify your position on this, because from my perspective, it's almost reprehensible medical malpractice to take a patient who has an autoimmune condition and not remove lectins from their diet and it's such a simple essentially free in strategic intervention with virtually no side effects except the good ones so i mean that that's the base i mean you've got to do that i mean it's just inexcusable if you have an autoimmune disease not to remove lectins And, and i have not heard anyone have a good argument against that but for those who don't have autoimmune diseases uh... these you know the lectins are in the many of the vegetables that have seeds and you know they these vegetables in addition to lectins have many beneficial micronutrients and polyphenols so you know what can you help clarify your position on once you achieve a certain level of health and wellness once you're there you know how you can integrate these a small amount of lectins comfortably back in and still get the benefits of the other nutrients, micronutrients in the foods
1: yeah um, you know th- You're right, almost every author uh, in the autoimmune space, uh, absolutely removing lectin, major lectin-containing foods is kind of the part and parcel of the treatment of autoimmune disease. Um, Anybody who talks in this space and not remove lectins, um, everybody else is removing lectins. So uh, I think that's a very important part of treating autoimmune disease. And certainly, uh, I've written about this and shown it in actual patients. I, I just submitted a paper last night to the American Heart Association EPA lifestyle uh, simple, uh, sessions uh, on this very subject with 102 uh, patients who. Um, over uh, 90 of them had complete remission of all of their biomarkers of autoimmune diseases by removing lectins within a six month time period. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. So, what about everybody else? Um, I think all of us are, are probably sensitive to lectins in one degree or another, but usually. As I talk about in the book, we have an amazing defensive system against lectins. We we haven't been sitting still, letting plants take advantage of us, mm-hmm. and certainly plants don't sit still, uh, letting us take advantage of them. Uh, we have an amazing mucosal system that can bind lectins, but we have acid in our stomach that's pretty good about breaking down proteins, and we have an amazing microbiome, uh, much of which enjoy eating lectin protein. So there's a there's a gut bug that loves gluten. So we've had all this defense system and I think when you look at traditional cultures that have not been inundated by antibiotics, by NSAIDs, by uh, proton pump inhibitors, with all of our personal care items, then I think you can make the argument that, in fact, these guys' defense system against lectins is pretty doggone intact, and they have a really good tolerance for lectins. On the other hand, our defense system in the West has been decimated, and so we're seeing more in effect of what these lectins can do. Uh, In my first book, I wrote about the effect of hormesis, and that is, of course, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And uh, Pericles, uh, centuries ago, defined that the dose makes the poison, mm-hmm. and I think that's still true. And so there is a, a, a perfect balance that everybody has to find between the negative effect of lectins uh, actually promoting health, and it's hormesis, and I agree that it's a true thing, And they tip over where every individual kind of tips over to where these things produce disease. And everybody's a little bit different. But I think, like I say in the book, that once we kind of get the gut back in shape, that we've solved the leaky gut problem, and we can see it on lab tests, then it's time to, if you want, reintroduce dietary lectins and start with Small vegetables, uh, peel and de-seed them if you if you want to. Certainly, pressure cooking solves the problem for most people. But I have no problem, and actually urge people to start reintroducing dietary lectins. But I can tell you, the autoimmune folks, we've tried, they've tried little bits of of things. All, almost always incite their system.
0: Okay that's an important point and I'd like to expand on it because you and I both know what autoimmune diseases are so perhaps you can discuss the most common ones and if any of those particular conditions respond particularly aggressively to electron introduction?
1: Yeah so um, you know if we I think if we knew what we know now about Uh, the immune system and autoimmune diseases, we probably wouldn't have chosen names. Um, In the past when somebody had swelling in their joints um, and we had uh, rheumatoid factor as a measurement uh, we called this rheumatoid arthritis. We now have a a second factor associated with rheumatoid arthritis which is called anti-CCP3. and. If we, long ago, somebody had a skin rash or had a butterfly rash on their cheeks uh, and had generalized, kind of feeling lousy, we'd we'd call it lupus, and there was a lupus antigen. We now have about five different tests for lupus, uh, some of which I like, some of which I still don't think are very accurate, but we use them. Uh, the most prevalent one is anti-nuclear antibody, but there's also an anti-DNA antibody and so forth. Uh, we see a number of people with Sjögren's syndrome, which is dry eyes and dry mouth, and half the commercials you see on TV every night uh, are these young uh, women in general going to the eye doctor mm-hmm. who gets a pr- prescription for restasis, which mm-hmm. is actually
0: an a immune-suppressing drug that we use in heart transplant. Um, So, uh, Excuse me for a moment, is Sjogren's typically the most common cause for dry eyes?
1: Yeah, it it really is. It's amazing how many people with dry eyes have Sjogren's syndrome. So if if you've got dry eyes, uh, please ask your doctor to uh, do the autoimmune test for Sjogren's syndrome. There's two of them and they're easy to obtain and you'll be surprised how many people with dry eyes are positive for Sjogren's syndrome.
0: And if that's the case you got it and
1: that's that's an autoimmune disease and it comes from the gut um it really does uh so you know and we could go on and on i see mixed connective tissue disease fibromyalgia is an autoimmune disease crohn's we see a large crohn's population a large ulcerative colitis or microcolitis population and these are all variants of autoimmune disease. Now, the darling of autoimmune disease right now is Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And it's it's really thanks to people like uh, Amy Myers and Isabella Wentz, who have really focused uh, the public's attention on something that's just kind of hidden uh, in, in medical practice. Uh, when I started this part of my practice, I was flabbergasted by how many women were on thyroid medication. And I mean, it was startling to me. And it turns out that there is a huge population, particularly of women, I see a few men, that have Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And they were just started on thyroid because they had you know, low thyroid. And now that we can test for anti-thyroid antibodies, and thyroid peroxidase antibodies, uh, we can see that there's a huge number of people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and we just didn't realize the scope of this. And quite frankly, I was taught, as well as many of my colleagues, that, well, you know, women are gonna come in and complain about being tired or not being right, or they wanna blame their underactive thyroid for their weight gain, and we just, you know, hand them a a prescription. And in fact, there's far more going on here than just handing somebody a prescription. And we've got to do a deeper dive into this. And you know, I really thank my colleagues in this area
0: for bringing this to everybody's attention. Well, we left out one of the big ones, MS, Multiple Sclerosis. Yeah, I'm glad
1: you brought that up. I I just, um, I'll I'll tell you a a wonderful success story and then a, a, a failure so far. Uh, both of these women uh, are uh, 38 years old. One's from the Midwest, one is uh, from California. And uh, the one woman, I'll tell you the success story, she, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, the biologic clock was ticking and she wanted to get pregnant. And she was on uh, a couple of you know really nasty immunosuppressants and realized she could not do a pregnancy safely with these. So uh, she contacted me and we we got her off of her immunosuppressants and her, uh, all of her inflammatory markers returned to normal and she got pregnant. And interestingly enough, pregnancy is usually for autoimmune disease, a very quiescent period. Your immune system has the largest parasite in the world uh, in uh, the woman and kind of takes a break and so most of the time uh, ms is very quiescent during pregnancy but after pregnancy mm-hmm. uh, it starts back with a bang in fact this uh, woman uh, had triplets uh, 9 years ago uh, i'm sorry I'll talk about the second one uh, this woman hadn't had any children uh, so uh, i just talked to her last weekend and uh, she her baby's now 4 months old and Marmo, a normal wonderful baby Uh, She actually had her first good night's sleep the the night before I talked to her. But we've been watching her labs, and she has not rebounded. Her immune system has stayed normal. She feels great. But she's one of these people who has absolutely um, drank my Kool-Aid, for my critics, and just stayed away from major lectins. And she's done great. The other woman who I actually saw yesterday is uh, also her same age. Her MS started uh, literally a couple days after having triplets and she had some complications uh, from having triplets and got several doses of antibiotics and almost immediately, um, within months, began having symptoms of MS and has had it really ever since and she's been uh, decimated by it. She's been on just about every uh, immunosuppressant, uh, major uh, chemotherapeutic agent, without much success. She now uses a walker. Um, we started with her about six months ago. <coughs> and she, she's not been able to adhere to the program. Mm. And she admits it, and we can see it on her markers, and she has the excuses. She has three you know, nine-year-old kids, uh, triplets, and it's an incredible amount of work to feed a family the way I'd like people to eat, and she has to go to soccer games and argues that she can't take a package of nuts, that she has to buy a hot dog at the soccer game, which is pretty lethal, and eat the bun. So uh, I spent uh, the hour with her uh, yesterday trying to make sense that perhaps, you know, being in a walker and deteriorating is uh, not worth uh, you know, having a hot dog. And there, I pointed out to her there's a paper that came out actually yesterday looking at uh, juvenile MS and looking at the impact of saturated fats uh, versus a cup of whole vegetables every day. And the uh, kids who were eating a high saturated fat diet had progression of their MS. And the kids that were transferred over to getting at least a cup of vegetables a day, uh, these kids did much better and had far less progression of their disease. So, you know, here we have a new study in juvenile MS that, that basically points the way that this is, you know, this is a, a microbiome gut problem. Well, and, well but I think but
0: you, I think you need to expand on that a bit because you just I think you touched on it in the last interview, but it has to do with the lipopolysaccharides and saturated fat. Because, but you know, to our audience, saturated fat is actually healthy, but if you have a disturbed microbiome and if you're eating a lot of lectins, it can be a problem. So, can you expand expand on that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. I, I have nothing against saturated fat. I think, uh, just as an aside, Dale Bredesen and I would say if you're an ApoE4, uh, which is a totally different subject, mm-hmm. I, I'm suspicious of saturated fats for you guys, and you can watch my videos on mm-hmm. that. But the the problem with uh, a disturbed gut wall, uh, lectins and NSAIDs are pretty good at making leaky gut. They actually force the uh, tight junctions that bind the intestinal cells together apart, and then not only do lectins get through the gut wall, but uh, lipopolysaccharides, LPSs, and um, you know, I don't, I don't swear, but in the book I, I call them little pieces of shit because they're actually the cell walls of bacteria. They're actually dead bacteria Uh, They're pieces of bacteria, but our immune system views them as honest-to-God living bacteria. And so LPSs can unfortunately ride on saturated fats. They hitch a ride on saturated fats through the intestinal wall. And so if you've got uh, intestinal dysbiosis, if you've got a mixture of saturated fat-loving bugs and simple sugar-loving bugs, which is the standard American diet, you've got a set up for having a, a bunch of LPSs in your gut and you've got a set up for a, a wall that's constantly being broken by lectins. And I think that this is really one of the main reasons that MS and the other autoimmune disease uh, get a toll. Uh, certainly Stress, a sudden stressor uh, is, 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 can start autoimmune diseases. Uh, like this woman, the, the triple pregnancy and then some antibiotics was a perfect start. I have other women with MS or rheumatoid arthritis who can, who can name the day it started mm-hmm. when they had a sudden, um, one woman's mother suddenly died when mm-hmm. she was about 12. And um, actually, I'll tell you an interesting story of St. Line, I, I recently saw a gentleman who's originally from Brazil and uh, has some pretty nasty autoimmune diseases in his 40s and he can tell you the date that his disease started in it, when he was 11. Mm-hmm. His mother uh, always pressure cooked his beans and rice uh, and I've had now many people from Brazil telling me that that's the standard of that culture to pressure cook beans and rice And her pressure cooker exploded uh, when he was 11, and it was apparently a rather impressive explosion. And so she stopped uh, pressure cooking. And within months, he began to come down with various ailments, he got severe tonsillitis, thought it might have been mononucleosis, but he's been sick that day. And he had actually gotten my book and had read about this story of quinoa and being pressure cooked in Peru, and the light bulbs went off in his head. And he says, my gosh, you know, I started getting sick the day my mother's pressure cooker blew up. And uh, so we're we're well on the path of recovery now. But it's good. I mean, it's little things like that.
0: Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more in my experience in treating autoimmune conditions, specifically MS it almost always, these individuals, had some type of really serious emotional trauma. And typically, it occurred before the age of seven or even five. Now, one of the questions I have to ask you, because I'm really curious as to your review of the data that you've collected, is the influence of vitamin D on these autoimmune conditions, specifically MS. And if you've teased out the details between those, because you can, you live in California, so it's theoretically possible, those who raise their levels naturally through sun exposure versus those who take the supplements.
1: Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've I've followed uh, for years your thought processes on vitamin D, and I've been following you long enough to even remember, and you may have even forgotten, when you came back from your vacation in Hawaii and... uh, had some issues and thought that
0: maybe your vitamin D levels were toxic. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I was confused back then. But at least I was <coughs> ahead of the curve. People didn't even know about vitamin D for the most part. The benefits yeah, no, and of it.
1: you know and that's that's why I continue to be a fan of yours because you know you'll you'll make a statement and then um, say eh, eh, you know maybe that was you know I wasn't too correct about that and You know that's one of the things I like to think I've been able to do. I I was a fan of certain things in my first book that I'm not a fan of now and I'm willing to say that and I say it in my second book. And so uh, I hope that we all when we see new data have the ability to say you know now that I have new data I was wrong about this. So back to vitamin D. I live in a community where, like you do, where people have incredibly dense tans because we have sunshine most of the year. And yet, these people with incredibly dense tans uh, often had fairly remarkably low vitamin D levels. Mm, interesting. But one of the things that struck me early on uh, in people with autoimmune diseases is they almost universally had uh, low vitamin D levels. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what's low? Uh, i I think the longer I've done this that that low is probably below certainly below fifty uh, the longer I've been doing this the more I push vitamin D on people uh, i I actually look at whether we're sealing the gut by when I can finally start backing down on oral vitamin D um, i've You know, if you had asked me, even 10 years ago, that I would suggest to somebody that they take 25,000, 30,000 international units of vitamin D3 every day for months at a time, you know, I would have called myself a quack. But since I was monitoring vitamin D levels on these people, uh, some people, uh, to this day, I've had to use The most I've ever had to have a person take is 45,000 international units a day to get their vitamin D levels up to 70. I like people with autoimmune disease to run right around 100. I, Quite frankly, I've been running my vitamin D level uh, over 120 for the last 10 years, uh, quite honestly, on purpose. Uh, Number one, uh, I'm not dead. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I don't have any neuropathy that I should have, I suppose. And I learned this from a couple of patients uh, about ten years ago, when we were actually quantifying levels above a hundred. And these people walked in sight unseen, and their vitamin D levels were about two hundred and seventy-eight, uh, two hundred seventy. A man and a woman in their seventies, and I was, you know, I was flabbergasted, and I looked at them and I said, uh, "Why aren't you dead?" And they said, "What?" and I said well you know you have toxic levels of vitamin D and they said who says and I said well everybody says conventional wisdom says you ought to have these incredible neuropathies and they say I said how long you been doing this and they said all of our lives vitamin D you know is incredibly important so I said "Hmm, that's that's pretty interesting and uh, so I I've been pushing vitamin D on my autoimmune patients, and quite frankly, once the gut is sealed, their vitamin D level requirements go down quite dramatically.
0: Have you speculated uh, a mechanism on that? Yeah,
1: I think it. I think it has to do with the absorptive ability of absorbing vitamin D. Oh, okay,
0: you that know, vitamin sense.
1: D is a fat-soluble mm-hmm. vitamin. Uh, but Dr. Hollick from Boston University, who knows more about vitamin D than any human being in the world, uh has shown that you can absorb vitamin D without fat. Mm-hmm. And that Fat is not essential for vitamin D absorption, which was, was certainly interesting to me. But there's, there's an interesting uh, theory, and there's, uh, there's a couple papers that suggest this, that, and I don't want to get too technical, but down at the bottom of the crypts of the small intestine and the large intestine, there is a a package of stem cells that live at the bottom of the crypt. And the stem cells actually advance up the microvilli to replete uh, the enterocytes that are shed very, very constantly. And again, not to get too technical, but it turns out that the type of bacteria that live in the base of this crypt actually do a lot of signaling to these stem cells, and we can get into that if you want to. It turns out that vitamin D is essential to get these stem cells to proliferate. And if you have low levels of vitamin D, they don't proliferate very well. Now, why that's important is in autoimmune diseases, as most of us think, the the gut barrier is decimated either by lectins or by NSAIDs or just the fact that we've been taking so many antibiotics. And we have to try and get these stem cells to replete. And if you don't have enough vitamin D to kick them out, they, they basically stay there. So that's really one of my main purposes in really pushing vitamin D levels on these folks. And I haven't regretted it yet. Okay. If you want to take vitamin K2, I certainly do. Um, I, I've not seen... Uh, uh, kidney calcification. I've not seen kidney stones from high dose vitamin D. Do you, I realize there's a potential for it, but I just haven't seen it. But you, I, I do uh, like people to take vitamin D, K2 when they're taking high dose vitamin D. Do you t- measure serum calcium too? When yeah. You, when
0: you're pushing Yeah, we hard? measure
1: serum calcium in everybody. Damn. We also measure parathyroid hormone in mm-hmm. everyone. And one of the things that was fascinating to me early on was the people with low levels of vitamin D almost universally had elevated parathyroid hormones, uh, which of course leach calcium out of bones. And I was interested early on that as I kicked people's vitamin D levels up, that their parathyroid level came down. And so when I see people with elevated parathyroid hormone, I don't immediately go looking for a parathyroid adenoma anymore. I push their vitamin D and if by pushing their vitamin D up, their parathyroid hormone comes down, problem solved. I can tell you that many people who are, are on a stable dose of vitamin D and then either forget it or they're traveling and they stop taking it and come back for a blood draw that even, oh, dropping your vitamin D from 70 to 50 on a level all of a sudden their parathyroid hormone starts popping up. So there's really a cause and effect that I've been able to see with this. That's good. I am, like it or not, I'm a big fan of of vitamin D.
0: So it's certainly a better alternative than a parathyroidectomy. And I'm wondering if if you've ever had to stop anyone from the high dose of vitamin D based on their parathyroid levels or uh, calcium levels.
1: Well again i like vitamin k2 um i've not seen excessive calcium levels from vitamin d uh i do back off people's vitamin d when you know i've for instance if i when i see people head above 100 except for my cancer patients i'll give them the option and i'll actually show my blood work and say you know here's my vitamin d greater than 120 for the last few years If you want to stay here, I have nothing wrong with this. On the other hand, um, I should tell you that this is you know, cloudy territory. If you want to back off a little, that's fine with me. Interestingly enough, one of the uh, companies that run my autoimmune tests, it's called Vibrant American, it's not a plug for them, when they measure vitamin D levels and vitamin D are above 120, they put a little sidebar that says Vitamin D levels of, of above 120 have never been shown to be clinic, have clinical significance. And I think that's an interesting statement for some lab to put on there.
0: Yeah, yes so, indeed. Now, personally, I haven't swallowed vitamin D in about 10 years, and my levels remain about 70. I'm comfortable with that level, uh, yeah. but I'm curious as to why The people who are exposed to the sunshine, as you attest to their deep, dark tan, what your belief is that why they aren't able to achieve normal vitamin D levels?
1: Well, I think uh, they've got such uh, an impenetrable barrier of of, of melanin from their melanocytes.
0: Mm -hmm. Ah, uh, so uh, decrease exposure. You know, uh,
1: there's some pretty good data in Africans, uh, free living Africans, Mm -hmm. that. Their vitamin D levels are around 50, uh, and so you know, good for you for getting a 70. Uh, the other thing that's important for us uh, in California is, you know, we've been inundated with sunscreen is king, and you have to wear sunscreen constantly. And uh, a lot of my patients, even with dark tans, continue to put sunscreen on every day when they go out to play golf the other thing that's important to realize is that most of my patients um, who have these deep tans actually have tans on their forearms and their face and uh, not their uh, body. lower legs sure. but they aren't walking the beach like you do every day
0: and I, they're not getting full body exposure okay that makes perfect sense alright let's go on to another area that I'm really passionate about recently and partially inspired by you Uh, I was particularly impressed with your commitment to uh, intermittent fasting at at a prolonged intermittent fasting 20 hours And I've recently adopted that and I am I think prior to our last interview. I wasn't as as an advocate a zealot pretty much for fasting not intermittent fasting but regular water fasting until I presented at the low-carb conference in San Diego and Dr. Bredesen happened to be right there, as did one of his patients, who's a patient of his and you, yours, and I'm sure you know who he is. And this man is an engineer and is just incredible. I mean, just a gift of knowledge. And it was so inspiring to me that after having a dialogue with him that I, I committed to a four-day water fast. And it was magnificent. Because I'm doing the 20-hour daily intermittent fast, I had no hunger. I didn't even not a craving during because most people have a hunger at day two or three and i'm actually going to start another four day water fast tomorrow um so i like to do it every month but i you know and then i've read dr Jason fung's new book and there's just the diabetes code which comes out in january and there is just i mean i don't know and i'd like your feedback on this but i don't personally know of any more powerful metabolic intervention than fasting
1: yeah no you're absolutely right uh I had the pleasure of being on a panel uh, with uh, Dr. Fung um, a few weeks ago, actually at Mind Body Green Revitalized, and uh, got a chance to to know him, and we're we're both you know, fans of each other. And I, I think uh, Jason Fung makes some, some very good points. First of all, uh,
0: it's cheap. Um, <laughs> it's it's better than cheap. It saves yeah. you money, not only money, but the precious resource that's more important than money, which is time you get you get like two yeah. after hours a day when you're fasting
1: uh, no you're really right and uh... you know he he makes i think a very good argument that uh... once you get past uh, two days of hunger uh... if you're not used to intermittent fasting it becomes a piece of cake and one of his arguments is that you know don't give up after a two-day water fast because you're giving up at the time it's going to get actually incredibly easy to do. And uh, I think we. what happens is we have an amazing repair system that goes into work uh, when you're fasting, not the least of which is putting your gut at rest is probably one of the smartest things that any of us can do. Uh, putting the wall of your gut at rest, not having to absorb nutrients, not having to deal with the constant inflow of lectins or toxins, but I think more importantly, it gives a chance as uh, as Dale Bredesen would say, to finally do some serious cleaning of your brain. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that he and I both agree on is that we're we're underappreciating the impact of uh, lipopolysaccharides on initiating the cascade of inflammation in the brain. And uh, thanks to his work and, and some of my conjecture, I think both of us think that, that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's have, have a unifying cause, and that is the brain basically defending itself against perceived threat a lot of which are lipopolysaccharides. And so if you put your gut at rest and don't have LPSs coming into your system, you really, kind of the longer you can maintain that realistically, the better off you are. And as as Jason Fung would say, yeah, intermittent fasting is great. Um, Doing like a uh, modified calorie-restricted diet, is great, but it technically so much easier to just stop eating. And you've probably seen my, my my revised food pyramid, and you know the second level of my food period is don't eat anything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> now it, the reason I like it is for two, two, two consequences, metabolic consequences so is one, is activation of autophagy, with self-eating, and removal of this debris in your body that's essentially taking out the garbage. And you know, you probably as a surgeon have taken out lipomas, and I'm sure many people have asked you, well, what, what caused it, or how do you get rid of it? Is it surgery the only way? Well, fasting gets rid of lipomas, it eats it up! Imagine that! You don't have to surgically excise it. So, yeah. but I mean, to me, that's one of the most powerful components, is activation of the autophagy process, and the second, is regeneration of stem cells. So I wonder if you could comment on those two two phases, which is why I'm such a big fan of fasting.
1: Yeah, I, What I tell my patients uh, about fasting is, um, we we live at the base of a, of a ten thousand foot mountain, and I, and we have hot air balloons that give people rides. And you know, I say, okay, let's suppose we're in the hot air balloon, and there's uh, we're we're caught up in a wind, and we're heading towards this mountain. And we've got to get over that mountain. And what are we going to do? Well, we're going to start throwing things overboard that are holding us back. And, you know, we're going to throw out the sandbags. We're going to throw out the lunch and the wine. And then we're going to start looking at each other and going, okay, which one of you guys is going over? Well, when you're in a period of fast, your your body doesn't know when that fast is going to end. Because all of a sudden famine has set in. And so we initiate you know, deep survival mechanisms. And our immune system looks at, at every cell in the body and takes an account and says, you know, this, this cell doesn't look quite right. Um, you know, I'm going to tell you to die, autography, uh, and, and so on. And so we actually selectively select the survivors. And, and that actually gets into stem cells. We, we know that in cancer chemotherapy, one of our Achilles heel of, of cancer chemotherapy is that the stem cells are not affected by chemotherapy and they survive. And so there's, there's a deep-seated desire to keep stem cells not only intact, but actually ready, because they're the best there is, to take the place of these cells that are not pulling their own weight. So, uh, I think this is, you know, all great religions have a fasting tradition. And it was, you know, it clearly had a purpose far beyond, you know, showing what a devout person you were. Um, And I think all, you know, these things have been practiced since, since time. Probably because long ago, We fasted because we had to Mm -hmm. Uh, and and we're unique among many animals in that we can go very long times. We're we're the fat storing ape. Uh, Great apes
0: just don't have the ability that we do and that's probably why we took over the world instead of gorillas. Yeah, One of the things that impressed me uh, from Jason's new book is that he shared how people who go on very low calorie diets who are massively obese, morbidly obese is the term, Develop these, I as mean, uh, almost everyone's seen, them these massive skin folds, which usually are surgically excised. But when you compare that to someone who's fasting, they don't get that because their body eats those skin folds as they go along. Even the, you know, they 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 only having two, three hundred calories a day. It's enough to stop the autophagy process to abort it, which is why I just do a complete water fast. I don't take branched chain amino acids. I don't take the only thing I take are my supplements, and that's it. And that's not food. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. You know. Um, Years ago, um, we a lot of us studied hibernating bears um, in uh, learning how to preserve hearts during uh, heart surgery and for heart transplantation. And uh, there's a, uh, there was a hibernation factor that, that bears and other hibernating animals make that, that's been elusive. But in the process of, of studying hibernating bears, um, I became incredibly impressed that you know, a mother bear goes into the den uh, pregnant. She, she doesn't eat for five months, and she, she suckles her cubs, I mean, she gives birth to her cubs, she suckles them, and she leaves the den with all of her muscle mass intact. Uh, why? Because if her muscle mass wasn't, wasn't intact, she couldn't hunt and they'd starve. But the most fascinating thing about it, and I talk about it in the book, is the, the mother bear doesn't urinate for five months. And uh, she doesn't urinate because kidneys have basically two purposes. One, to get rid of the water we either drink or is in our food. And number two, to get rid of protein waste byproducts. And she's not burning her muscle, so she's not burning protein, but she's burning fat. She's eating her fat as ketones. So she's in ketosis for five straight months and she doesn't urinate so i mean there's a and believe it or not we run the same metabolism as bears we're an omnivore just like a bear Uh, bears become insulin insulin resistant every fall to store fat and they we act just like bears so we have a perfect model to study what happens to humans and so prolonged fasting in humans has been studied extensively
0: so as a healthy adult And convinced of the value of fasting, I'm wondering if you, I know you do intermittent fasting, but I've never discussed your application of multi-day water fasting. Is that something you do or have done?
1: Yeah, yeah, I've done it a few times. After spending time with Jason, I'm going to, uh, as you may or may not know, for the last 10 years, uh, starting starting January 1st, just because that's when I start, you know, I go uh, 22 hours a day without eating, Mm -hmm. and I, I do that until June. And I've done that for 10 years now. Uh, I'm going to throw in um, some four-day fast as part of this. It'll be, you know, duck soup (laughs) because I I just don't eat for two other hours, you know, big deal. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to throw that in because, uh, again, spending time with Jason has convinced me. Yeah,
0: it was a a game changer for me. I mean, the mental clarity that comes from that, too, is just so beyond profound. I mean, it's just almost indescribable.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My, my wife, uh, we have a, an interesting fasting center uh, just up the road from us called We Care. Uh, we Care is quite famous because uh, Hollywood actresses head there for a week before the major award season to, you know, uh, slim down. But uh, my wife, uh, I've known these wonderful folks for years. And uh, interest, interestingly enil- enough, uh, Alex uh, Younger, Alejandro Younger, uh, who's a good friend, uh, actually was their medical director for a number of years. But my wife uh, did it at, uh, at the, as their guest, uh, did a seven day water fast. And uh, she came back, said it was one of the greatest experiences she ever had. And then she talked about the mental clarity. And it happens, uh, it, her, it happened at around day four. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's interesting.
0: Well, it probably would happen sooner if she was doing the long right. intermittent she, fasting that you were yeah, doing. Yeah, she
1: had. Yeah, she had not been doing intermittent yeah. fasting at all
0: uh, yeah. before that. Yeah. So that that's just. In fact, I caution people now if they're going to do four-day water fast, to not do it until you've been doing it at least eighteen hours for a month, and then yeah. it's just as yeah. a piece of cake. Piece of cake.
1: And the other thing I think is as a, a provisor of that, and I I'm, I might take exception with uh, Dr. Fung here is that so many people are insulin resistant and have high insulin levels. Mm -hmm. When you start a water fast with a high insulin level, uh, you really, many people will will crash, Mm -hmm. uh, get hypoglycemic, uh, get some pretty impressive headaches. And you can get past that by using coconut oil or MCT oil several times a day. And I I, I still think that's a wonderful trick. And if you want to um, maybe segue into why elevated insulin levels and insulin resistance is, is one of the leading drivers of most of the bad things that happen to us in this country.
0: No, no, I think we'd we beat that one to death, I think, it's, <laughs> you know, okay. it's, like, it's, it's a well-known factor. Good. But, 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 but I think, as you mentioned, if you're insulin resistant, it's a problem, but the, that's the beauty of doing the 18-hour daily intermittent fasting, because if you're doing that every day, you are going to beat the heck out of insulin resistance, and by the time you're ready, you will not have it, you will not crash. The only caution I recommend is something that you learned the hard way. If you want to avoid these intractable muscle cramps at night, you've got to take extra salt. You've got to take oh, yeah. extra salt. Uh, because your body's needs for sodium increases quite dramatically when you're fasting.
1: Yeah, so, you know, and uh, lower uh,
0: your I'll, magnesium intake too. Cut down yeah. your magnesium supplement, or you will have disaster pants. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, Albert Finney, you know, showed this years and years and years ago, and you know, we we have to tip our hats to these pioneers who said, you know, when you're fasting, you got to increase your salt. And you know, you look at it like, oh, Well, why would that be? And
0: you know, they showed very elegantly
1: that you know, you got you salt waste very rapidly. You've got to get salt in you when you're faster.
0: Yeah, I think he Finney. I heard him lecture at the same event uh, that I met uh, Bredesen and uh, your patient, uh, and he described uh, that as to the 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 uh, actually the cause of the keto flu was lack of sodium.
1: Interesting. Yeah.
0: Interesting. So. Um, you you you've done so much brilliant work over the years and I'm wondering if there's any other uh, insights you know major insights that you've captured and like to share now or any other commentaries because we're getting ready to close and uh, I just want to capture some more of your wisdom for our audience
1: well I guess my major insight learning from my patients is that it is never too late in your life to embark on uh, changing your life around. Uh, and it really does get get down to stem cells. Now, you know, stem cells are the darling of everything. And we have plenty of stem cells. And what is important to realize is that we, you know, change out our cells, about 90% of us are replaced, you know, every, every three months. Uh, and the, the fact that, you know, you can take an, an 85-year-old woman uh, with coronary artery disease, with diabetes, with arthritis and hypertension, and, and, and now uh, she's 96 and a, a vivacious fireball who's dating an 80-year-old and, uh, you know, ties her hair red. And <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> there, it is never too late. And we just have to understand that no matter what shape you're in, if you actually you know, take the advice that's out there, whether it's yours, or mine, or Bredesen's, or Fung's, or and so many other people, uh, just to name a few, um, this, this is not rocket science. Uh, it really isn't. There are some fundamental principles that anybody can put into action and change your lives and i tell people you're going to probably hate me for a couple of weeks but then you'll probably start liking me <laughs> except for my critics they'll never <laughs> like me
0: <too. laughs> this is true we all have our critics but uh yeah it's it's, it's, it's the basics you know and interestingly i had uh, a dinner with uh, thomas Seafried who we've interviewed many times before and he's of course the pioneer in developing the metabolic mitochondrial theory of cancer and he was commenting on stem cells and he was not a big fan of stem cell uh, transplants even autologous transplants because he's seen a pretty significant increase in cancer from them and so you don't and it costs like $20,000 typically not covered by insurance so but a lot of people are doing them and you know the benefit beautiful thing is you don't have to do them you can just fast (laughs) you don't have to (laughs) you get a a free stem cell transplant
1: you know I I have some very good friends who are uh, high uh, investors in stem cells use them and I agree we got we got plenty and you know it it was funny years ago I was approached by a major Korean stem cell company to kind of be there Chief uh, in their push into the United States, and I, I, I wanted to learn more about this. And I said, "So now let me get this straight. Um, how do the stem cells know where to go?" And they said, <laughs> "And they said, well, you know, they go where they're needed." And I said, "Yeah, okay, that's it. that's great." And then I got to thinking. I said, "Well, wait a minute." We've got plenty of stem cells, and all we've got to do is, you know, activate them and send them where they're needed, and they'll go where they're needed. And you're absolutely right. One of the best ways to activate them is to fast.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much for sh- being so kind to share your wisdom with us, and I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. You know, it's, you're, you're so right. It's just application of the foundational basics is what can be more than enough of a catalyst to activate your healing process and, and help you take control of your health.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, make no mistake. For a lot of people, this is very hard to do because it goes against everything we've we've been taught, every, all of our habits, and habits are hard to break. You know, uh, Mark Twain was famous for saying a, a habit, you know, is is a habit and not to be taken lightly. It 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 can't be thrown out the window like bathwater. It has to be coaxed down the stairs one step at a time. And so, don't give up. You're you may be a little bit miserable initially, but it's worth it. I mean, it's absolutely worth it. Yes, indeed. I mean, we all we all want to die young, uh, at a very old age. I mean, that's <laughs> every one of us wants this.
0: Yes. All right. Well, with the, apply these tools; it'll help us achieve that. Thanks so much.
1: Uh, all right. Well, thanks. Thanks again for having me, and thanks for listening. All right.